When we think of the Industrial Revolution, we tend to think of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Actually, it's already obvious to a lot of foreign observers when they're coming to England in this period that something already has happened quite significant by 1700, that already French, Spanish, Italian, Ottoman or Indian visitors to Europe and to England in particular, they're often commenting on the difference between England and the rest of Europe and saying, you know, Paris is pretty nice, but London, wow, you know, this is a mega city with you know, dramatic growth, with all sorts of inventions that I've just never seen before. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Wahidur Rahman, and you're listening to the second episode of the Innovation Civilization podcast. In this episode, I sat down with British historian and author Dr. Anton Howes, where we talk about the roots of innovation in the modern West, with the Industrial Revolution in Britain, what led to the glory days of British innovation, and really the sudden onslaught of innovation from the 16th to 19th century, which took everyone by surprise in the world because Britain was pretty much a technological backwater before the 16th century came around. We also talk about what lessons can be learned from that period when it comes to accelerating innovation. Dr. Anton is the head of innovation research at the Entrepreneurs Network. He's also a former lecturer in economic history at King's College London. He released his latest book, Arts and Minds, which tells the story of Britain's National Improvement Agency, the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, the RSA. He's also got a great newsletter called The Age of Invention, which I also highly recommend. I hope you find this episode beneficial. Anton, welcome to the podcast. Glad you could join us today and uh, talk through about your work. Thanks very much for having me. Brilliant. So Anton, let's start by pegging our goalposts properly and defining some terms and first principles of this topic. So you study the history of innovation within Britain and probably Western world at large. Can you tell us how you're defining the term innovation and how it's different from something like invention? And the reason I ask is because the term innovation has been like prostituted so heavily across by different companies, businesses and startups and, and even governments now, right? So I'd be very grateful if you can define exactly exactly what we mean here by innovation invention for the rest of the conversation for our listeners? Yeah, so I'm actually a bit idiosyncratic in some ways, in that I use invention and innovation kind of interchangeably. Sometimes you'll see, usually from the economics literature, people talking about invention being, you know, the process of actually coming up with the idea, and then innovation being the process of applying that idea, so typically to the market, right? So I guess, you know, someone like Matt Ridley has recently, in, in his latest book, How Innovation Works, talked to you know, use that distinction and, and I guess propagated it, popularized it. But this is a very old distinction that goes back you know decades and decades in, in economics. Personally, I find that unhelpful, partly because when we say the word invention, the thing that springs to mind is typically machinery physical objects that are then improved in some way, their efficiency, their design, their form, and so on. And when we say innovation, it's kind of become a much broader term that seems to encompass a lot of things that are a bit more intangible. Um, so I think one of the reasons that innovation becomes, as you say, a sort of buzzword that's just become maybe a bit meaningless, a bit of guff that people like to pad out their corporate or government prospectuses and so on. A lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that innovation can be um, about processes to do with, you know, 
how we organize things. You know, it can be organizational changes and so on. So to kind of concretely answer your question, the way I define innovation really is to maybe take a, a bit of a step back and say it's about improvement. And what you're improving, the lines upon which or the aims of improvement can be different. So you might be trying to improve something's taste, you know, if it's something like coffee or food. It could be that you're improving a machine's efficiency. It could be that you're improving the design of something, the user design of something, the user experience of something, the efficiency with which you get certain things within an organization done. Um, anything that involves improvement is, I think, part of this, part and parcel of the process of invention. And then there are kind of sub-stages within that, which might be, you know, coming up with the idea that's maybe a part of the, the process doesn't really get you very far because, you know, you might never get stuff off the drawing board. Then there's, you know, making your models, getting your prototypes. Then there's actually putting something into practice, maybe at a small scale. And then even I think there's a process of invention or innovation or improvement going on when you're trying to upscale something and trying to, you know, make it as large as possible and, you know, find as wide a market or as many users as possible. So I take this very broad view and I, and I like to use the two terms invention and innovation interchangeably because I think you can invent con concepts um, that's actually where originally the word invention has a much much older heritage going back to you know if you were to look at uh, Christopher Columbus declaring that he's discovered the new world he will use the term invenio that's okay cool, or inventio yeah. Yeah. Um, so even in the in the distant past, you know, a discovery is actually kind of the same thing and is put there in the same camp as um, even literary invention. So you know, coming up with a few lines of poetry that you might want to use, you know, mm -hmm. that's invention as well. Now, I maybe don't go quite so far as that. I think maybe discovery is a sort of an edge case, partly because, you know, there is often some kind of novelty or some kind of risk taking or some kind of coming up with something that people haven't done before in the mm. process of discovery, right? You're trying to be the first to do something. You're trying to do something that others haven't done. But yeah, that's how I how I define it. And I this is, I guess, another point to make here is that I'm not usually interested when people say, oh, who was the inventor of X? You know, because they, they want to know who's the first person to do something. And I think that's often quite misleading. Someone like James Watts or Newcomen's inventions to do with the steam engines. You know, ultimately, these are still improvements, marginal improvements, where they're riffing off not only others' work, but often their own work. You know, they'll come up with one small change that improves the efficiency of one part of the process. And then they'll build on that and, and tweak it and improve the efficiency of that particular change or then come up with another bit that to another part of the process where... Ultimately, when they unveil this thing and they reveal this grand invention to the world, it looks as though it's come out of nowhere or that they've it's kind of appeared almost fully formed. But when we actually get into the details and get into the weeds of how these things are invented, it comes down to marginal improvement. So the thing I usually like to say is that the thing to focus on isn't so much invention, innovation, these words that I think occasionally will lose all their meaning. Although they're still useful, I think, to kind of ground what it is that you're talking about in general terms. Um, but what we should really be talking about is improvement. This marginal, gradual process, that I think is where the action really is. And ultimately, I think anything that looks like it's some great leap forward is still actually just a collection or a bundle of these marginal improvements. 
We've had a lot of innovation periods before, but modern humans, the particular effect that the Industrial Revolution had was quite intense. We've obviously had empires work on improvements, for instance, the Greeks and the Islamic empires over the course of the centuries that really enabled this innovation as well. But the epoch of time between the 1500s to the 1800s were quite instrumental in creating the modern world as we know today. There were tremendous material improvements in literally all aspects of life and Britain is known to create and export this process to Western Europe at first, especially with Belgium, France and the German states in the early 19th century. The United States is known to have followed the British model in the early 19th century and Japan from the Western European models in the late 19th centuries. So this is something I cover with Anton as well on why this particular epoch of time was so crucial. Quite simply, because that's when innovation accelerates. You know, we'd had inventions before, right? You could name all sorts of inventions from the ancient world through to the Middle Ages. In Sung Dynasty China, there's this kind of brief efflorescence of all sorts of innovations. In the Islamic world of the 9th to the 13th centuries, you again have this real flowering of all this kind of bubbling up, this efflorescence of all sorts of inventions, all sorts of scientific advancements, all sorts of medical advancements. But things only really start to get going in a way that is is, you know, obvious to everyone at the time. And certainly looking back, there's a kind of improvement along every single line. So when we talk of the Industrial Revolution, we tend to think of cotton, coal, steam, iron, these kind of particular industries, leading industries. And to a certain extent, that's merited because in terms of the overall effect on the economy and on GDP per capita, those are some of the leading industries. But if we actually look a bit more closely at what's going on in the rest of the economy, actually, we're seeing improvement along everything, right? There's dramatic improvement in agricultural efficiency. There's dramatic um, improvement or change that is in the diversification of agriculture. You've got improvement in gardening. You've got improvement in watchmaking and clockmaking, in leather making, in wool textiles, as well as cotton, as in linen, bleaching, in, you know, in absolutely anything you can think of, there's actually improvement taking place. That acceleration of improvement starts to real really start getting going in the 17th century and early 18th century. When we think of the Industrial Revolution, we tend to think of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Typically, you know, you'll hear dates thrown around like 1780 to 1830, 1760 to 1850. But really, actually, it's already obvious to a lot of foreign observers when they're coming to England in this period that something already has happened quite significant by 1700, that already French, Spanish, Italian, German visitors are saying, huh, something interesting is going on here. Similarly as well, even just a few decades later, when you've got Ottoman or Indian visitors to Europe and to England in particular, they're often commenting on the difference between England and the rest of Europe and saying, you know, Paris is pretty nice, but London, wow, you know, this is a mega city with you know, dramatic growth, with all sorts of inventions that I've just never seen before. And, that, you know, this is the sort of thing that we're hearing um, from them. So there's this kind of step change 
in invention, which, as I said, is a very ancient thing and a very global thing. Um, but it becomes especially concentrated in London in particular, but also increasingly in other parts of Britain and then starting to spread to other parts of the world as well. So in many ways, we're actually kind of still living through that acceleration invention. Sometimes people ask me about buzz terms like the fourth industrial revolution, what have you. Just I just think complete nonsense. There is only one industrial revolution. And we're still living through it, right? This this acceleration invention has happened in the mm. 17th century. It has, it has spread from Britain to other countries, first mm. to Europe, I think, just through sheer proximity and trade links and so on, has increasingly gone global. And we've seen amazing changes in just the last few decades, for example, in East Asia. We're starting to see it in just the last decade, maybe two decades in Africa, where you know, there is a lot more innovation going on and the same sorts of processes are being replicated, sometimes in the sense of just catch-up growth. I say just. Catch-up growth is still an extremely important thing. And, you know, we're talking, you know, getting up to the technological frontier in a way that unlocks growth that has just never been before been seen in human history. To put this in context, Britain grew by about 1% a year for 100 years. But that meant that other countries could suddenly have these 10% per year growth rates that we now see where they can adopt technologies straight off the bat without having to develop every single marginal improvement along the way. And that is in itself an amazing thing and requires quite a lot of adaptation, quite a lot of innovation of its own, right? To implement something and adapt things to local circumstances often takes invention of it. So actually, interestingly, something that you see within Britain itself in the 16th and early 17th centuries, right? They first get good at adopting things before they then start developing things themselves. Um, and now we're starting to see that, I think, with, you know, these hubs like Shanghai or Shenzhen, let's say, where, you know, these are clearly becoming hubs of the frontier of innovation now being pushed out. You know, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, these great success stories as well, and increasing, I think, many other countries too. Yeah. And just coming back to that kind of idea of different industrial revolutions, right? So I wonder if that is because people peg the industrial revolutions or the second or the third and the fourth to specific technologies. So say steam engines mm. then versus now it's say like data and artificial intelligence, where I think what you're talking about is just looking at it from a more step change kind of way and then spread. So how do you think about that really? Yeah. I mean, that's what's going on when people are splitting it up by different revolutions is that they're picking out particular technologies and saying these are the most important ones. I think it's just nonsense. It's an example of presentist bias. We're sitting here from our thrones in the future, um, <laughs> having benefited from having yeah. been able to see what the right technological, well, not the right technological paths even were, but having to see what the most successful technological paths were and saying mm. these are the most important ones. When actually, if you go back to any period of history, and you look mm. at the, the relevant technologies that we now think are particularly famous, they're competing mm. with the whole sorts of, you know, all sorts of other ones, right? Um, you know, at, the, at exactly the same time that people are developing electric telegraphs, right, in the mm -hmm. 1830s and 40s, they are also developing hydraulic telegraphs. So, you know, mm. there's, and clearly one of those ended up being much more successful than the other and unlocked all sorts of other potential technologies beyond that. But that's not to say that we couldn't have had an alternative world where, I don't know, for whatever reason, the resource shortage of certain kind or whatever, that we wouldn't have had a completely different, you know, counterfactual technological path. Or in, it's actually, I, you know, I, just, mm. I seem to recall here reading somewhere that this is mm. a bit outside my period, so I need to tread, tread carefully here. But I seem to recall reading somewhere that, you know, there were electric cars in the very early days of cars. It's just that the batteries were extraordinarily expensive. Now, mm. had 
oil not being quite so relatively cheap, would we have had this alternative technological future or technological present even? Um, potentially so. The same with things, you know, when people focus on resources like coal and they say, you know, Britain was just lucky to have lots of great big coal deposits. Well, yes, sort of. But, you know, it hadn't used those coal deposits for hundreds of years other than for heating. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Um, but then through technology, through innovation, it unlocks the potential of those resources. And that's what we see time and again is that, you know, what for a lot of people is just waste or just kind of just a bit of dirt in the ground or whatever, or a kind yeah. of useless or poisonous plant or whatever. You know, innovation or improvement or coming up with, you know, these changes or imagining these new changes and, and developing them and working on them, and systematizing knowledge is what allows us to unlock the potential of things for human use. Yeah, and that's very interesting because I think it's been, I mean, obviously, not only in the kind of industrial revolution in Britain, but also all throughout the ages. I think I was reading through the kind of invention of paper. It was basically Kai Lun, right, who did that. And the Chinese had paper for a while, but I think they were using that to as decorative art, you know, and then put it up on buildings and stuff like that. And I think after the kind of Abbasid conquest in like seven, eight centuries, they got the paper making people and then they started actually writing on it right and then started basically making it a part of the bureaucratic processes so i guess that's an example of where you take stuff that's one man's residue is another man's benefit you know i completely butchered it there but it's something like that right sure yeah i mean so actually another great example would be shen guo who's like a sort of the Leonardo da Vinci of some dynasty China, or rather Leonardo da Vinci is the Shen Guo of Renaissance Italy, given Shen yeah, yeah. before him. He writes about oil and says, you know, this is actually potentially a great source of fuel for lighting and so on. And, you know, maybe we could use oil instead of trees because the oil seems to be infinite in the, in the earth and it's going to be a thing that will never run out. But again, just seeing this kind of waste product that no or just thing on the ground that no one else is really using very much and then imagining possibilities for it. That's the, the crucial thing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So just coming back to mm. kind of the Industrial Revolution in Britain. So you mentioned there is obviously like a step change and massively focused acceleration within that epoch of time we we're talking about. So let's pick the bones out of that a bit. What do you think are the kind of key factors that led to being such an accelerated period of innovation and invention within that period? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, right? This is the one that every economic historian has got their own pet theory, which is why it's often quite a difficult thing to approach because there are, you know, people will always in their books, and I'm very guilty of this given the book I'm now writing, you know, will try to put forward their pet theory of, of why it happened. It's the same with the decline of the Roman Empire, right? Everyone's got their theories of why it exactly happened. For me, the key thing to understand here is that in my research, I focus on the individual inventors and innovators themselves, right? So rather than taking this kind of macro level approach and trying to work out what's going on in the economy as a whole, um, I've started from the premise that, you know, if we want to understand what exactly is happening here, we need to understand why there are more inventors than before, right? So we need to actually look at the experiences, the, the lives and the circumstances and the characteristics of the individuals who actually did all of that inventing, which is a surprisingly small number of people, by the way. I think what's Mm. curious here is that you can have an industrial revolution with not very many people, and actually even more so for the earlier periods. You can have golden ages like like in Song Dynasty China. If you actually look at the, you know, so you get all these lists of all these inventions, but if you actually try to boil it down to who are the individuals responsible for these, it turns out to be even fewer, right? So we've got a few people 
doing nearly all of the inventing. And the same in the Islamic golden age of the 9th to the 13th centuries, in that, again, you know, there's actually only a few names who are doing, kind of bearing the burden of doing all of this inventing. Now, the key thing that's happening, I think, is that we start getting more and more inventors. And then those inventors are applying themselves to lots of other things. And the way I like to think of it is that one of the key things that I found in my research is that Invention seems to spread from person to person, or rather what I call an improving mentality spreads from person to person. So the seeing the potential that things can be improved, imagining, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the possibility of improvement, and then actually doing something about it. This is a sort of mental framework, a way of looking at the world that is actually extremely uncommon. Even today, when invention or this improved mentality has become almost a sort of endemic in the world as a whole, where you can come across it quite easily, Very few people are still inventors, right? Very often people still are pretty stuck in their ways. They don't tend to improve things. They kind of expect others to do that improvement for them, right? People are used to scientific progress. Very few people are actually engaged in the process of of trying to push it outwards themselves. And that's especially so back then when the improving mentality hasn't spread that much. So what makes Britain special, I think, isn't so much that it's people are particularly inventive or anything. It's just that the spread of improvement becomes even more viral there. Right? It's like we kind of have a new strain of the improving mentality that becomes ever more viral. And a lot of that is actually just due to the actions of the inventors themselves. And this is where my research recently has been trying to unpick the exact details of what's going on here. But effectively, you have inventors in Britain and, you know, there are inventors throughout all of Europe at this period, right? So we're talking 16th, 17th century. In fact, England is a backwater technologically in the mid-16th century in nearly every domain, right? It's it's adopting a lot of technologies for the first time in navigation, which is very surprising. You'd think an island nation would be good at navigation. Actually, no, it's only really getting going in the mid-16th century in agriculture, even in metal uh, making, even in their age-old occupations like textile making they're adopting a lot of things for the very first time what's going on is that the inventors themselves within britain especially seem to adopt a kind of almost i mean nowadays you'd you'd say an almost open source kind of mentality alongside the improving mentality they become a lot more prone to sharing they become a lot more prone to trying to get support from for their inventions from elites and from other inventors and from people who might fund them and so on, and through elements of openness. Now, I'm not talking about them just kind of giving away all of their secrets. Sometimes they're still keeping some elements secret, but they're trying to make other elements as public as possible um, to try and gain support. And so you end up with innovation within England and then within Britain being played out in public. So through publications, through demonstrations for big crowds of people. You get inventors actively trying to get support, not just from the monarch, but from other elites, from aristocrats, from merchants, and so on, in a way that kind of has the edge on other places, right? It's not like there's a massive difference between what's going on in England and France, but there are marginal differences there, to the extent that with enough marginal differences, it actually seems to make a very large difference overall, with inventors in other countries within Europe starting to look at England and saying, That's the place I should go if I want to make a success of things. In the same way, right, that it's pretty easy actually to be an inventor within Europe today, right? But people Mm. are still going to want to go to the place where it's really happening, which, you know, until very recently has been Silicon Valley. So I think England gets that reputation over the course of the 17th century, such that by 1700, it is the place, right? It is the place where people are, you know, foreign visitors are writing about England. This is the place where things are improved, right? If you want something invented or just come up with some theory or something, okay, maybe go to France. But if you want something improved and perfected, 
you go to England. And that's a reputation that it maintains for well over 100 years after that, from, you know, through the whole 18th century, and then quite a bit beyond that as well. And it's only the 19th century that you start to get these sort of declinist narratives, which even then are false. A lot of it's actually Britain's doing absolutely fine technologically. It's just that other countries are also doing better. And so their relative position doesn't seem quite as uh, impressive. The scientific method, arguably one of the most ideas ever, was discussed by historical scholars from different civilizations across time. So we had Plato and Aristotle from the Greek empires more than 2300 years ago talk about it there was lots of codification use and canonization of the scientific method that occurred in the islamic empires between the 8th to 12th centuries by ibn al-haytham known as al-hazan in the west who combined observations experiments and scientific control testing that we do today of controlling different variables with having independent and dependent variables he used that to support his theory of vision in his book of optics. In Europe, this was really amped up and popularized during the scientific revolution in the 1500s in England. One of the key figures was Sir Francis Bacon, often referred to as the father of empiricism in the West. His influence on unleashing this drive of innovation within British society and the world at large was amazing. Bacon popularized inductive reasoning, looking at particular observational data and coming up with conclusions. This Baconian program unleashed within England wanted to create this new Atlantis, a new vision of society based on sensory observational data that we can quantify and make conclusions from. So this is something I covered with Anton as well on the effects of the Baconian program on early Britain during the 1500s and the 1600s. So Bacon's interesting in the sense that he's not the first, right? He's not the first person to come up with the Baconian program, ironically. But he is like the, I'm trying to think of a good example today. He's the key popularizer. He's like the kind of the pop academic today who would take an idea that's been around for quite a few decades and a few people have been writing about it but you know their works have just been not as interesting and a bit dry and he's written the blockbuster books that then over the following decades everyone is talking about and they're calling themselves Baconians and they're talking about my Lord Verulam you know that's Bacon's um, title and and they're talking about Bacon and they you know they've got pictures of him hanging up on their walls and so on so he's the celebrity uh, philosopher of science. I guess, you know, what's interesting about him is in some ways, you know, actually during his lifetime, he's feeding into some of the more negative narratives around invention, where, you know, he's upholding monopolies. He has a lot of, you know, he's very involved with the kind of more croniest ways in which inventions are being propagated in England in the early 17th century, which ends up having all sorts of problems by mid-century. And, and you know, actually it's a kind of a big, ma a major context of the English Civil War in the kinds of dissatisfaction that people are feeling. That said, the program that he outlines, right, the, so the, the core of the Baconian program, and this is drawing especially on the work of people like Joel McKeer in The Enlightened Economy, his book, and A Culture of Growth, which is his most recent one. So people who've read those books will be quite familiar, I think, with this, which is that it's a kind of the three C of um, collection, categorization, and counting, right? So you're looking at the world around you and you're trying to put everything together. So you're trying to quantify everything. You're trying to put things that seem even remotely similar next to one another so that you can compare them, um, so that you can find patterns, right? There's a kind of active 
amassing of knowledge, even if that knowledge seems quite useless, to see if there might be some kind of use for it. So in a sense, the Baconian program is taking kind of what we talked about earlier, right? This idea of, you know, seeing what's just useless dirt for one man is an amazing commodity to be used in all sorts of industries for another person yeah i think i got the code back in my mind so one man's trash is another man's treasure so there you right go. <laughs> exactly one man's trash is another man's treasure so it's, yeah. in a sense it's trying to yeah. systematically sort out the trash from the treasure right okay. right which is okay. that if we actually put all of if we collected all the trash in one place and we start comparing we start <laughs> testing it and we start Love experimenting yeah. it and we start working out yeah. you know and we have a, just a, a program by which we go through all of the trash we'll find mm. more treasure right that mm. i think is a really good way of, i need to write that down somewhere um, <laughs> <laughs> that is the, i guess at the core of it right so let's collect all of the random plants that we've just discovered in the new world or the you know if you've got off on some expedition to persia or to india or whatever let's just pick all the flowers and, and figure and send all these things back and start working out whether or not there might be some useful dye or some medicinal properties or, or what have you. Um, mm -hmm. So the Baconian program, I think, really inspires people and gets the movement really going mm -hmm. because there's this kind of lightning rod effect, right, which is that by having a sort of manifesto written out for people to really kind of coalesce around, um, you start to see more and more people engaging in that. And I think that's extremely valuable because then you have an actual movement behind this collection of scientific knowledge mm -hmm. and testing of it. And then as a result of that, not just collection and, and testing, but also application, right? So another part of the Baconian program, which is often neglected by the scientists or natural philosophers, as, as they're mm -hmm. then called, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. is also about trying to reveal all of the existing technologies from around the world and spread mm -hmm. them, right? So if there's already a really efficient leather making process, let's say, but only one person in, I don't know, Bohemia or something happens to know it, and he's only passing it down to his apprentices. Well, let's find that secret. Let's open it to everyone. And then everyone's going to benefit from the cheaper leather and the superior products and the better design and so on. Um, so a yeah. lot of it's kind of unlocking existing knowledge. And I think mm -hmm. there's a similar thing. It's, it's trying to work out, are there or is there already a lot of treasure out there? And let's just go find it. And mm -hmm. then on top of that, I think a lot of people assume that it's about the improvement of knowledge. But actually, a lot of the focus at the time is just about the preservation and dissemination of existing knowledge and finding those existing secrets. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost by accident that we then get the further improvement through all of this mm -hmm. experimentation on top of it, which kind of creates a whole kind of momentum of its own. Mm -hmm. I find this really the popularization of this Baconian program really interesting because I think we still see the iteration of that today. So you have someone, for example, like Elon Musk, right? Just writes a tweet and then like literally changing markets that works, you know? So he's really like the hero in the entrepreneur world. So one of the kind of reasons that Tesla has crazy valuations yeah. that no one can make sense of is because of the Musk factor, right? And you've got the same thing with innovators like Steve Jobs as well, right? So for me, it's just interesting how that has always been a theme throughout the different kind of centuries, really, of you've got this one or two people who are really ushering in as loudspeakers and then creating this kind of memes around yeah. one phenomena and then really propagating it across, really, which is very interesting. So it's often posthumous, yeah. unfortunately. So <laughs> for Bacon, you know, yeah. a lot of his fame is actually decades after his death. The, one of the really ironic things is that he's the Lord Chancellor for much of his career. You know, he has a lot of government positions. Mm -hmm. And ironically, it's actually when he is pushed out of one of his positions and then has mm -hmm. to kind of put forced into retirement. Interestingly, over 
a patent for invention and corruption mm. surrounding patents for invention. Then he kind of in his retirement is writing down all of these works. So ironically, he kind of sees his decline in his person, yeah. in his actual career. And then it's only later on that people pick up on those works. And they say, oh, this is great stuff. And that happens a lot as well, right? So if you look at Confucius, I think he died basically believing that his life was a failure, really. And I think much after that, basically, and Confucianism really blossomed, right? And you get the same in, in kind of other fields as well. People at the time, so I think Socrates is a good example as well, right? basically being killed by people around you. And then <laughs> later, people really understand that uh, actually this guy's work was really interesting. So there's something about the present people not understanding the value of your work, right? Which is was very interesting, but later picked up. By I just later. always wonder if that feeds into the why it becomes popular later on, because people love an mm-hmm. underdog as well. They love a mm-hmm. they love a, an oppression story or a victim story, right? And then they, they <laughs> use that. I'm mean, thinking of Galileo, where... As far yeah, as I, I mean, I'm not an expert on Galileo, but as far as I'm aware, like this whole thing about him being persecuted by the church is actually, in some ways, justified because he was, you know, a bit of a difficult character to deal with, and they do actually give him all sorts of chances and ways out, and he just very pig-headedly refuses everything. And mm-hmm. it's not to do with religion as such, but you know, mm-hmm. actually, the proof at the time is is very lacking. Mm-hmm. You know, he just has this very very strong opinion on things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and okay. it's not so much persecution as just you know it's later on it feeds into a very very helpful narrative for yeah. people to then kind of create this religion versus science dichotomy and then the myth is born right or you know similarly more recently people like Ada Lovelace where you know there's some evidence of her being somewhat innovative certainly of imagining kind of futures for the ways computers might work but you know I mean she actually doesn't do very much during her lifetime I mean to be fair she dies very very young and so there wasn't much scope for it but I think there's something about the kind of romance of that which is the kind of unrealized potential there is actually what's making her famous that you know, mm. had she lived to a ripe old age rather than dying of cancer in her 30s, that she might have done so much more. And that's what people are really kind of mm-hmm. um, interested in. Uh, whereas poor Babbage, you know, is now almost a sidekick character, even though he's the one that's actually doing a lot of, a really a lot of invention, a lot of scientific advancement and also institutional and organisational changes mm-hmm. as well to support science and he's now weirdly being sidelined mm-hmm. that makes sense so coming back to this kind of baconian program there's this nietzschean concept that basically every idea has some kind of like a metaphysical presupposition in the minds of people really there's like a genealogy and there's like an assumption that they're making and there's like a transcendental metaphysical claim someone makes and then basically they channel people around that and ideas around that. So I am very interested in understanding, you basically mentioned that pre-1500s England is pretty much like a backwater, right? Mm technologically. But then all of a sudden, you've got completely changed. So what was Bacon's motivation? And what was that clique of people you're talking about? What is the source of the motivation? Is it something like you want to go against the, for example, Islamic gunpowder empire? So was it kind of more like in terms of you want to expand the state? So was it imperialist? What is the root of this idea? You know, why all of a sudden, basically, they were doing this improvement mentality? And how do people even get convinced afterwards? wake up in the morning and start basically inventing stuff and creating a treasure from trash. I was wondering if you can speak a bit more about unpacking the reasons and the genealogies of why that idea came about, really. Yeah, so the improving mentality, I mean, this is a hard thing because I think the improving mentality has gone through a lot of different 
phases where it's not necessarily the case where they're even talking about it the same way. The reason I, I call it a, a mindset or a mentality is that it's not necessarily a fully formed idea or ideology. Let me put it this way, you know, if you're a climber, right, if you love to climb, right, you just look at the world in a slightly different way to everyone else, right? When I see a wall as an obstacle, you see this thing that you can start climbing, right, that you can grapple with. You just see the world in a slightly different way. And I think that's the same with improving mentality is that people with it, they look at the way things are done and they think that could be better. They see room for improvement. One thing, one of the things I've been tracing in a lot of my research is trying to work out or, or, or noticing even just the ways in which this is almost unarticulated or trying to find the articulations of when it's happening. You know, I was using this instrument and I started getting annoyed with how inaccurate it was in this way. And I thought, oh, I'll try to improve it. Um, They're not even necessarily using the word improve. I mean, improvement as a word doesn't even really start getting going for this end until the late 16th century. There are a few routes a bit earlier on, but, you know, it actually had a slightly different meaning where it was more to do with to profit from something specifically for land, which may or may not have actually involved any kind of technological improvement. Sometimes it was just could you raise the rent? And if you raise the rent, then that's an improvement on the land, right? It's not necessarily the case that you were able to raise the rent because you invested in it and you, you know, you actually created, used a better technique or you you planted better crops or you founded some kind of rural industry or something on that land. So improvement as a concept even doesn't always necessarily get formulated in the same way. And that can often change over time. But it is, I think, this way of looking at things. And that's the thing I keep coming across time and time again, is that when you read carefully into the ways that inventors talk about the things that they do, um, it comes down to that kind of blend, right? It's, it's a frame through which they see the world. So, you know, I think it comes to England from abroad originally mm. in the 16th century. It's not clear that you've got a lot of people exercising themselves with this kind of improvement. You know, I think that you can see something very similar in Sung Dynasty China, in the golden age of the Islamic world. You can see it in Renaissance Italy. You can see it in the Dutch Republic's golden age in the 16th century as well. The improving mentality, I think, has often appeared in many different places and is often responsible for elements of those golden ages, even if it doesn't necessarily result in that much economic growth and certainly not permanent step change. And that, I think, is where the difference is. It's not in explaining where does the improvement mentality come from. It's in explaining why does the improvement mentality in Britain become more viral? Why does it spread so much? Why does it take root rather than kind of dissipating and just dying out? Now, obviously, these much older periods are much more difficult to study. We just know less about who's responsible for what. You know, there's very limited records. Sometimes even, you know, how much we know about who invented what is based on, you know, one throwaway line or something in some source talking about something else entirely. In fact, that's even the case for a lot of the stuff I've had to study in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, even even the 19th century, that sometimes our records of things are just very limited. So I think the improvement mentality has probably come out, has been invented. I mean, again, this is just pure conjecture, right? That it's... It's possibly Mm. been invented independently at many periods throughout human history in the same way that people come up with all sorts of other leisure activities or hobbies like, I don't know, stamp collecting or, or climbing or what have you, where these things kind of will come up independently. Um, but when things really get going, it's because you've got someone spreading things. So stamp collecting is a great example of this, right? Where no one just starts collecting stamps one day, or maybe someone, maybe a few people do, but that's very, very few people. You're more likely to become a stamp collector, which is a very niche hobby, right? If you know someone else who collects stamps and you see them doing it and you're like, oh, that sounds, that seems like quite fun. I'm, I'm going to do that too, right? This is something where the independent invention is extremely rare. 
And I think that's the same with the emergence of the incrementality. But then what really matters for whether or not you actually have a whole group of people doing things is how much you have this kind of evangelizing, this proselytization, this sharing of it, this kind of openness and kind of willingness to actually get other people to do it as well. So I think a lot of what happens in England in the 16th century is about this kind of proselytizing element. And a lot of it, I think, is driven really by the opportunity that England gives a lot of inventors from abroad, which is that here is a pretty backwards country that is suddenly diplomatically isolated, religiously isolated because of the emergence of Anglicanism or the kind of split from Rome. Nearly all of its neighbours hate it, Spain and and France in particular. It's teeny-weeny, it's militarily quite weak, and it's pretty desperate in some ways. And so if you're an inventor with... For example, a German miner who has copper making techniques and you happen to know that there are copper deposits because, you know, in the past they've been investigated a little bit. You can probably go to the the Queen of England and say, hey, by the way, you know, I can give you a, a nice supply of copper, which is extremely essential to any war effort that you're going to have or just the defense of the realm or any of your foreign policies in trying to mitigate the potential disasters that are about to beset you. Um, so the mid 16th century is, you know, interestingly, a period of crisis. And not just crisis singular, but crises plural for England. You've got almost constant plague and famine and revolt and rebellion and instability and all sorts of other problems, such as that kind of diplomatic isolation and and trade crises as well, such that it seems like a lot of foreign inventors and potential discoverers and so on see that opportunity and and then seize it quite quite effectively. Um, And they do it in such a way that their hold over elites becomes quite strong and not just the monarch in particular. I think, again, this is weirdly, this is a kind of advantage of backwardness, right, which is possibly something that we kind of see recurring throughout history, that sometimes a country that's actually well behind has a certain advantage from the fact that it's so behind. And in this respect, it's that because the monarch is in particular so poor, they're actually forced to rely on a much broader set of elites um, than just the monarch. So whereas throughout Europe, it's relatively easy for you to get the King of France to invest in your new gunpowder technology or a particular German princeling or so on to invest in one of these new processes that you've just come up with. In England, you can go to the monarch, but you're really going to have to get support from the wider nobility and the merchant elite as well. And that creates a much deeper pool of support, right? And a much more mm. long-lasting one. So even if the queen dies and there's some new monarch who takes power, who mm. you know is just not interested in technology at all, you've still got supporters. You've still got this kind of pool of people who are going to continue to have this interest. And so this is actually really interesting when it comes to people like Bacon. In that you know Bacon's first known involvement with technology is because he inherits shares from his father, who was an investor in, in actually the exact example that I gave you of, of German miners coming along and, and introducing new technology to England as a result of the English crisis, resulting in the, one of the first joint stock companies. So one of the first three or four, not just in England, but in the world. So, you know, the fact you even see things like joint stock companies being or corporations, business corporations being created in England is actually itself also a reflection of the fact that they need a broader set of elites. They're not just going to get government funding for a project. They need to get investors from a much broader group of people as well. Yeah, that makes sense, really. And I think whatever you just mentioned, basically, that 16th century was a moment of crisis, right, in Mm -hmm. plural terms. It almost seems to me that that kind of consolidates the old adage that necessity is almost the mother of all inventions. Because I look at, for example, when big innovations happen, right? So, for example, you take 
the kind of Apollo missions. And it was pretty much like you got to compete against the Soviets, right? So that's when like 50s and 60s, you've got like huge amounts of innovation that happened there. You take, for example, 19th century Japan and the Meiji restorations, right? So it was very state-backed way of getting back at society, you know, it was almost from a moment of crisis. And you talk about China as well today, for example, I think this is my personal thesis, that one of the reasons that China is so incredibly innovative and they're innovating at scale and very fast rate is because the CCP is very much insecure about Western powers, really, mm. you know? So if the Western powers didn't exist, the opponent didn't exist, the crises didn't exist, you probably wouldn't have a clear cut tangible incentive and motivation to invent really and innovate. So I yeah. strongly disagree with that. Okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. The necessity of some other invention is like, if, if there's one thing I want to do in my career, yeah. it's to banish this term <laughs> wow. from, okay. from the lexicon. Tell me more. Yeah. So I don't think crises are the mother invention. They're not causing invention anyway. They're catalysts. Okay. They're catalysts for pre-existing supply of, of inventors to get support mm-hmm. for projects that they already had, right? So here's a great example, which is explorations of discovery, right? So trying to find, and again, you know, as I mentioned, you know, when Francis Bacon mentions the invention of the clock and the discovery of the Americas, he uses the same word, invenio, right? In the kind of medieval or, or mm-hmm. kind of a modern yeah. Latin, mm-hmm. right? They conceive of discovery as being the same as a project for invention, right? It is an investment. It is something you have to put kind of potential waste into to then see if you discover this new trade route or invent this new trade route, right? Discovering a route is also invention in a, in a way, at least in their terms. So take someone like Sebastian Cabot. So this is a Venetian-born explorer. He's a kind of cartographer, navigator. He's especially expert in the navigational methods that are pioneered by the Iberian explorers and the various Italian explorers of that age. So, you know, he's, in some ways, his father was connected in in some kind of ways that are still unclear to us exactly how, but quite connected with Columbus, uh, with Vespucci. The navigational techniques they're using is celestial navigation. They're using the stars to navigate, which means that suddenly the open ocean is something that they can navigate without having to be familiar with the coastlines, which is the kind of traditional form of navigation, at least in Northern Europe. Um, So there's a bit of use of the compass, but ultimately it's about recognizing coastal landmarks, you know, putting a plumb line down to the, you know, a bit of lead on a string, basically down to the bottom of the ocean with a bit of gum on it or something and trying to pick up the sediment and recognizing the sediment and saying, okay, that's the bit that's associated with this coastline. So that's where I am, right? So using the stars to navigate, just finding your latitude, longitude is a thing that's solved much later, just finding your latitude is is a major, major invention. That's what allows the the Portuguese and the Spanish and all these Italian navigators kind of working for them to navigate so effectively. And possibly this even comes from the East, that it's something that's used in the Indian Ocean, and they adopt this through the Islamic world, just because of the differences in how those oceans are navigated. And there's even actually, a, which, sorry, this is a bit of an aside, but there's even a theory that actually celestial navigation comes from desert navigation. So mm-hmm. navigating through the Sahara, where you don't have obvious landmarks. So being able to use a clear sky is the way that you do it. And so potentially this is the way it works. So John Cabot, his father, actually apparently even goes on an expedition to Mecca, so a kind of voyage of exploration there and potentially picks up some of those techniques there as well. Anyway, so Sebastian Cabot is the person who introduces celestial navigation properly to England in the 1540s. So he had worked as the pilot major for the Emperor of Spain and he sort of defects and brings over all of his knowledge and his expertise in this form of navigation to England. Now, that happens in the context of the crises, but he's not the first person to try to do this. In fact, 
you know, his father tries to do this in the 1490s. He himself tries to do this in Bristol in the 1510s and 20s. You have a whole bunch of other people trying to get these same voyages of exploration, you know, either in the, to the northwest or the northeast to try and find a more direct route to China. They don't know quite how bad the ice is going to be, right? So they think maybe there's a route that we don't have to take where we have to go all the way around the Horn of Africa or all the way around South America and across the Atlantic and into the Pacific to try and get to China. Maybe there's a way that we can find a shortcut via the kind of going around the, the north of what's today Canada or going around the north of Russia. This is a project that's extremely old. It's just they don't get support, right? So the crises allow for people like Cabot to get elite support, to get a very obvious kind of advantage there where and a very ingrained advantage of a kind that just doesn't happen before. Um, and actually, it's the same with the introduction of things like German mining techniques. Like this happens a few times. You have, for example, a guy called Joachim uh, Hochstetter, who tries to, you know, he gets a bit of support from Henry VIII to come and prospect for all sorts of metals. But ultimately, it just doesn't last, right? It just, there's a, it's a project for a few years, they kind of lose interest, and he has his own troubles, he leaves, nothing comes of it. His son, Daniel Hochstetter, is the person who ends up, I can't remember if it's a son or a nephew, but whatever, the, you know, another part of the Hochstetter clan ends up being one of the founders of the Company of Mines Royal, one of these very early joint stock companies in the 1560s, because the whole attitude of the monarchs and of the elites have changed, right? They have this much kind of very different priorities. And in, in a way, this is, this is not just that they have different priorities, but that the inventors have adapted their the way they try to sell their techniques and themselves to those priorities, right? They start to say, look, you need a voyage of discovery if you're going to fight Spain. Look, you need to be adopting these mining techniques if you're going to stay rich enough to be able to, you know, just have basic self-defense of, of the country or defense of the realm. Yeah. But the actual, the supply of it, of it was there already. It's just that they weren't getting the same success. So I suspect you see exactly the same in other periods of history, right? There were always people who were interested in space and wanted to get funding for rockets to fly to the moon. It's just mm -hmm. that the catalyst of the Cold War changed things and, and made it much more likely they would actually get funding. They would get definitely support for it, right? So that I think is the way we need to be thinking of things. Um, yeah. That it's not that necessity causes invention, that it's a catalyst for certain kinds of invention um, mm -hmm. to get support. And I think that's a very, very important distinction. Talking about the British innovation landscape, the biggest elephant in the room is probably British colonialism. From the end of the 1500s for the next couple of hundred years, 400 years, colonialism was very much a known model for a lot of the European empires, including the British. The role of commerce, diplomacy, statecraft, trade was intertwined with the birth of these joint stock companies like the British East India Company within the Indian subcontinent and the Levant Company within the Ottoman Empire. Britain took over parts like the Indian subcontinent which was 25% of the world's GDP at the time and was showing signs of proto-industrialization as we know of today. One of the examples that can be gathered is the example of Muslim clothing in Bengal in the 17th and 18th centuries, where the production process was recorded in detail, exported to replicate in the northern parts of England and produced there as a result, and suffocating the original parts where they originated from in Bengal. So this is something that I actively explored with Anton as well on what he thinks were the 
synergies between state colonialism and innovation that happened? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So some of the companies you mentioned, right, we need to be careful again not to have a kind of presentist bias here, which is that we know how things turned out, right? The East India Company becomes this monster that, you know, by the 18th century, it's not just a trading company, it's, you know, actively conquering parts of India. And so Mm -hmm. when we look at a company like that, we think, okay, it was always destined to do that. But that's definitely not the case, right? If we look at when it's found in the 1600s, right through to the 1640s, even for decades, this is a very weak company. It's one that struggles every time it tries to use a bit of force out in the Indian Ocean or in Indonesia and so on. You know, at one point, it even has a kind of pact of defense with the Dutch East India Company, which is much stronger, much better funded. You know, when Madras is founded, right, the fort at Madras is founded in the 1640s, this is actually something that is completely against the company's directors back in London, Mm -hmm. because at the time, they're actually scaling back in the region. They're getting rid of as many of their um, trading posts. They're abandoning their forts. They're abandoning a lot of the stuff they've been in because they're saying, we haven't got the money. We haven't got the investment. The Dutch have squeezed us out. We had this deal with them, but they've, you know, they've benefited more from this deal than than we have you know for decades and decades this is you know the the success of east india company is not a foregone conclusion basically and it's the same with the other companies in that yes you know it's when we when we when you say the levant company you think maybe it's very similar that it starts kind of throwing its weight around and bullying the ottoman empire absolutely not you know for decades and decades and decades a lot of these companies are at the whim of the local ruler. In fact, actually, the, the fort at Madras is particularly interesting because it's almost entirely funded from the local ruler and local Indo-Portuguese communities, which had you know, been rooted there for decades and decades. You know, the English model of early trade expansion right, is basically that they realize they're extremely weak and they need to adapt to local circumstances and satisfy local demands. And it's only much later by becoming so insinuated and kind of, you know, they get so, you know, this kind of strategy of weakness, if, if, if you like, or kind of playing into their weakness and adapting accordingly means that they become so common throughout various regions that they then eventually, when they have certain technological advantages through weaponry, let's say, or, you know, when you've got the invention of marine steam engine, you start seeing steamboats and, you, you know, this sort of thing that later on you start to see these advantages being brought to bear in a kind of more military way. So that's just one thing I want to start with in terms of context, because I think a lot of people forget this. And again, when they think of the Industrial Revolution and they think of this period, they think of the 18th century. And they're not thinking about what I think is the much more interesting and actually much more important century, which is 1550s to 1650s, before England has any real imperialist kind of power at all, right? It is the weak empire like to the extent that it has an empire in in americas you know it's teeny weeny little colonies and it's Mm -hmm. barely throwing its weight around at all i think what really happens that's really interesting in the 16th century though is there's this trade expansion right so after cabot introduces celestial navigation you get this spread of england's trading range from really just trading most almost entirely to the netherlands and perhaps a little bit with the northern coast of Spain, the northern coast of France, you know, coast coast huggers, right? This is not very ambitious stuff. Um, <laughs> that they start pushing into the Baltic. Um, the mm-hmm. initial voyage of exploration that Cabot organises into to the coast of Morocco, 
um, to the west coast of Africa, so the Gulf of Guinea, to the into the Mediterranean, to the Levant, so you know modern day kind of you know, Israel, Syria, that kind of region, to and not just that, but also the Greek islands, which is where some of their main imports of things like raisins and currants and that sort of thing are being imported from across the Atlantic into the White Sea. So a direct route to Russia via the north. So kind of the, the port of Archangel um, starts to, or uh, um, Arkhangelsk starts to kind of grow up around that English trade. Um, that's the real major expansion. That's trading, right? Yes, occasionally these people are violent, right? So, you know, English mariners are, you know, just like any mariner at the time, they can be prone to a little bit of privacy on the side, a little bit of privateering, maybe a little bit of raiding. But this is part of the core stuff, you know, um, at the time. Everyone's doing that. I mean, this is a period where Algerian corsairs are raiding northern Europe, you know, at the same time. Mm. So this is and sometimes even all the way into Iceland, which people forget the kind of range that starts to be achieved in, in the 17th century. So that trading range is, I think, the real major catalyst for a lot of change, because suddenly it brings England into or London in particular as this trading hub for all sorts of imported luxuries, whereas before they had to almost entirely rely on other European merchants to bring those things to them. So Things like sugar initially from Morocco and then increasingly from the Iberian kind of slave colonies in the West Indies and in, and in America um, starts being imported to England. Incidentally, the Moroccan sugar is often slave grown as well. Sugar, it seems even since the Middle Ages, by the way, before all of these things, even on islands like Crete and Cyprus, overwhelmingly would use you know convict, slave convicts as well as other forms of slavery. It's just a very, very harsh industry and so it's very difficult to find wage labors and so the people who want who want to grow sugar would try to find slaves wherever they could and sort of propagate an institution so you know they're importing sugar and then they're exporting kind of refined sugar to other places they start importing tobacco tobacco weirdly is actually something you can actually grow in in england and there are a few attempts to do that and they usually crack down on by the merchant interests because they want to maintain their trade monopoly so you have you know tobacco plantations the kind of in, in gloucestershire which are which are destroyed by the authorities you start to see things like i mentioned currants and raisins being imported from the eastern mediterranean you start to see furs and honey and wax and all sorts of things being imported from Russia, as well as the beginnings of a major grain trade, which really starts to be important in the late 17th century and early well, 18th century, really, from the Baltic as well. So this trading range, you know, makes London a very interesting place, right? It, it means that you have all of these amazing exotic products, which are then re-exported to the rest of Europe. And so London's commercial wealth starts to grow quite dramatically. And I think that that wealth ends up being the main source of a lot of funds for later investment in industry. Now, some of that wealth is Ill, ill-gotten gains, right? There are a few experiments with the slave trade from the English side in the 1560s. So there are three expeditions by a guy called um, John Hawkins. Francis Drake is probably involved in the third of these, possibly in the early ones, so it's unclear, where they notice that there is a demand for slaves from these Iberian colonies in the Caribbean. And they think, okay, this is a way for us to get money. And so they they go to the west coast of Africa. They do a bit of raiding of their own. They buy some slaves from Portuguese traders who are there. They get involved in local wars where, you know, part of the profit that they get from being involved in kind of local wars is to to get the slaves that they capture in those wars and then they try to take them over to the caribbean and sell them but after a few attempts you know these come to an end it's not really until the mid 17th century that the slave trade becomes a major staple of 
English commerce again. I guess the way to characterize is that people forget how England is actually a very minor player early on. Now, later on, things change dramatically, right? The English slave trade becomes one of the major slave trades in mm. in the 18th century. The reliance on raw cotton starts to become a very kind of slave-dependent kind of commodity, especially in the 19th century. You know, actually, most of the cotton is imported from the Caribbean, from Brazil, from the Eastern Mediterranean. It's only really in the 19th century that American cotton imports, especially from the South, start to take off and become a major staple of that trade. And then, of course, you know, there's the kind of conquest of India by the East India Company, over, especially in the late 18th century, and the famous ones being, you know, the 1760s wars and the kind of mass looting and so on, and the domination of those of those regions that starts to take place. And so later, you know, there is potentially a source of funds for industrialization from those later conquests. But it's I think the way to think of it is that you've got a kind of you know, one thing builds on another. I think mm. the momentum is already there in the late 16th century before you've got that major involvement in colonialization, a kind of very violent and aggressive way. But before mm-hmm. it's really just about trade expansion and yeah. maybe a bit of privateering the Spanish on the side, you know. Um, mm. And there's a few attempts, certainly by people like Hawkins. But ultimately, a lot of the stuff we see later is a much... I can't see it being a really major fundamental cause of what takes place later, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good way to kind of put that in perspective. So the next thing I want to kind of ask you is, and I think we've already touched on this a bit. So if I'm a layman observer of kind of Western society in the 20th century, in the 25th century, I see it's pretty much all about, I'm going to say Western innovation is basically like American innovation, you know? And that's from your kind of Henry Ford to your Manhattan projects, your space explorations to obviously the formation of Silicon Valley and the innovation monopoly basically has become with the IT world. So what was your thought basically? Do you think that there's been a decline in this part of the Atlantic when it came to innovation versus the time you were studying or what changed? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a decline. So this is sort of I think what happens is that improvement or the improvement mentality spreads to so many countries that it's not clear who the major leaders are anymore. America, I think, has a lot of advantages growth wise in terms of just the way the the kind of, you know, its natural geography and increasing populousness over the course of the 19th century. Um, it maintains high wages because it's still, you know, despite that population growth and immigration, still got relatively few people compared to the the land available so there are kind of growth factors that kind of make it seem as though the invention perhaps is greater than it is but really i mean you know britain still remains a very innovative place even if it lost the kind of lead kind of obviously that it has in the 19th century um, industrially so yeah i think that can look like decline because it's relative decline it sort of reminds me of this graph you sometimes see where it's it's kind of countries as a proportion of the world economy and it shows china being massive and, and, and india being massive and then declining and it looks as though britain has expanded at their expense but because the graph is a relative graph all it's showing is that one place grew faster than the others even if they were continuing to grow if one place grows faster than it's going to look on that graph as though it's kind of happening at its expense right so it's if it's just in percentage terms and i think that's kind of similarly what happens to britain in the 19th and 20th centuries is that britain is continuing to grow it's continuing to innovate as are a lot of other countries nearby in europe it's just that america in some ways has a lot of other advantages and perhaps that's 
to do with availability of capital. In some ways, I think they're inventing a lot of systems to promote invention from scratch, especially after the American Revolution, which give them a bit of a lead. So the patent system is actually a great example of this. You know, they look at the old British system, which has emerged from personal monopolies being granted by the monarch, where it's very much a kind of on a deal and on a deal basis, on a kind of case-by-case basis originally. And then that has morphed into a patent system, but it's not really a system, right? The only laws that we have governing patents before the 19th century tend to be um, what the monarch can't do and not actually saying how it should be set up. And so after the American Revolution, you see this founding of a similar system, but along kind of more rational lines. And by rational, I mean that they approach creating the system from the perspective of how do we promote invention, which is not the way the patent system in England had been. Or, you know, originally you have these deals, but the system kind of evolves much more gradually. And it's through this constant lobbying that it kind of adopts certain features. And so in the mid 19th century, you have a major patent reform, which tries to copy and replicate elements of the American system in Britain. And so that's showing, I think, just some of the ways in which America, by having this kind of fresh start and and clean slate, is starting to get the edge. So in terms of patents, you see this, you see this in terms of funding. So the spread of limited liability in a kind of general way for companies comes much more available in countries, interestingly in France as well, um, but especially in places like America and is then again adopted in Britain in the 1850s as part of their kind of paranoia that people are catching up to them. But I think that lead that America has in some respects in the late, uh, very late 18th and early 19th centuries starts to pay dividends pretty soon. And also, you know, vibrant print culture, a lot of the spread, you know, you have a lot of people who are actively spreading invention. It probably helps, you know, that one of their founding statesmen, Benjamin Franklin, is also an avid inventor, as are quite Mm. a lot of the other founding fathers, right? You know, Jefferson and so on. These are people who are very interested in science, very interested in, in natural philosophy, very interested in, in, in invention and in, in improvement. Whereas in Britain, you know, it's still very much relying on this kind of deep pool of people, but not necessarily those who are, you know, completely in charge. So there's a kind of pool of people to draw upon. There's certainly investment, there's certainly um, sources of finance, but in some ways, the founding of these institutions or refounding of institutions that they're, you know, they're, they're looking at Britain saying these are pretty good and then they're copying them and with a specific intent in mind. And the same happens in Europe. Often states start to get involved in essentially copying bottom-up institutions, but in a top-down way. So they'll look at the mechanics institutions in England, which emerge in the early 19th century to support, well, this is basically working men um, deciding that they want to educate themselves. And so hiring, you know, pooling their financial resources and hiring lecturers to give them lectures on science, on design, on industry, pooling their resources to create libraries and so on. So these working men's colleges or working mechanics institutions, as they're most, they're usually called, these are a bottom up thing with a bit of support from others and the evangelists and proselytizers, but they're popping up all over the country and they're very much working class institutions um, and they're not something designed by the government. And France looks at these and, you know, France is wanting to keep up with Britain technologically so that it can you know, continue to fight it or being at least competitive with it as it's, you know, age old neighbour and enemy. And they say, well, what, let's just do this with the state. Let's just get a lot of state funding and create these institutions from scratch. And so, you know, that's the sort of thing that Britain starts to then look at you know, with worrying eyes in the 1850s and 1860s and starts to also come up with its own solutions to try and implement elements of state funding and just to keep up or rather not keep up, but keep ahead. So yeah, I think it's not that there is a decline, it's that there's a relative decline. And that's simply because other people are 
are finding their own feet, or other countries are finding their own feet when it comes to invention. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, even today, right, people worry about the rise of China. Well, it's not the rise of China at other people's expense. It's the rise of China as the rise of China. That's going to make that graph look again, right, that as though China is becoming the major economy. But it's not necessarily at the expense of every other economy. Now, maybe mm -hmm. in certain industries, there might be worries, you know, strategic significance, blah, blah, blah. But mm -hmm. in terms of the kind of overall wealth of the world, that is on net increasing, right? That's interesting. It's almost like the pie is getting larger. It's not like zero sum. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's the pie is getting larger, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. I said it a bit clumsily with the, the about the earlier graph, but that's what I'm saying is that they, yeah, yeah. It, the graph makes it look like it's a fixed pie, but actually, if we just look at the share of the world economy, mm -hmm. um, and that's what it's showing, but actually, you know, no, a lot of these economies were still growing, or they're they're just stagnating. They're not necessarily shrinking. Yeah, that makes sense. And on that note, so I think it will be a last question, mm -hmm. but I think it might be the toughest question, actually. So at Impasco, we're quite focused on interested in the developmental nature of the emerging and frontier markets of the world, uh, particularly in the East. So that's your China's, India's, and everything in between, which has basically got its spillover effects of progress and innovation. I know your work has been kind of focused within the bounds of a specific British zeitgeist in a specific time. But I was wondering if you would kind of synthesize the key lessons that mm. can be extracted from your work on the topic for policymakers and entrepreneurs and economists in the region. What would you say are the key areas they should think about if they want to do better, bigger innovation in the emerging markets? Okay, one way to think of Britain in the Industrial Revolution is that it's the first developing economy, right? The presentist bias in us might say, okay, you know, Britain's a developed economy. No, it is the it was the first de properly developing economy in a way that it sustained for well over 100 years. Is, right. So if that's the aim of people in these kind of emerging markets is that if they see themselves as places that are rapidly growing, that there, I think there are potential lessons to be learned in, in that respect. So there should be a focus on adoption of technology. And now that's what a lot of emerging economies are doing. Right. That's the kind of the, the bread and butter of a lot of um, economic development yeah. is adopting exist pre-existing technologies and then adapting them to local circumstances. And so certainly that should be supported as much as possible. And, but where things I think get interesting is in terms of pushing the frontier outwards on your own. And so in that respect, I think the lesson to be learned is that if inventors are the most important thing, you need to be encouraging inventors to move to there, right? You need to be trying to create hubs, trying to create centers where it's obvious that inventors are going to be welcome it's obvious that inventors are going to be supported in some way, not necessarily just, you know, in terms of finances and so on, but just attracting them in as many different ways as possible. And we should not lose sight of things like prestige, right? It's not all about finance. Um, sometimes we need to look at, you know, do we have institutions that are rewarding inventors through, I don't know, titles, you know, in, in England, you can you can use knighthoods and so on and, and uh, OBEs, MBEs and whatever, um, which they don't really use very much, to be honest, um, to support invention, but it could be, right? There are projects in the 19th century to try and use existing orders of chivalry to try and reward scientists and inventors in a particular way, where they're trying to find loopholes basically within existing institutions and adapt them to that end. But the other thing here is that the inventors and innovators within those countries themselves should be taking the initiative to create institutions or adapt existing institutions to support other inventors. So having that very pro-social view. Now, I don't know to what it's, I mean, again, we're talking about a lot of countries here, right? I don't know the specific circumstances of all these countries, but, and the kind of ecosystems that are already developing there. But, you know, look at Silicon Valley today, 
right? One of the main reasons I think it's so successful is because when people are successful entrepreneurs, they then give back to that same ecosystem, right? They become venture capitalists. They become mentors. They set up things like Y Combinator. They start getting involved in the open source movement. They start getting involved in the maker movement. They create those that kind of Again, that openness, which is, again, exactly what happened in Britain in, in the 17th, 18th centuries, right? which is that they were publishing, they were writing, they were sharing, they were funding one another, they were creating kind of a deep pool right, of support for future inventors and not just for themselves and not just within particular industries, but within all industries. Right? So one of the amazing things about the improving mentality is that you can apply it to anything. Right. Just because you've started off improving, I don't know, steel doesn't mean that you can't then go into watchmaking or clockmaking or something else as well. Right. The, the mentality behind it is the same, even if the skills required are perhaps going to be slightly different. So that's the I think the key takeaway is, is inventors themselves were often a, the ones who are creating or adapting as institutions, sometimes through lobbying, sometimes getting involved in politics, not elected politics, but, you know, through trying to get the right regulations in place and trying to get ahead of certain stories. You know, if there's a steam engine um, explosion of some kind, it's often inventors who are the first on the scene and saying and investigating what exactly went wrong so that they can be the ones who are also the ones being consulted by the powers that be about what should be done about it. Right, you know, to prevent a ban, let's say, on the whole technology or just to kind of get something more nuanced in place. And so that kind of political involvement or regulatory involvement, that kind of institution creating, you know, even just creating societies for people to talk to one another, to share expertise, to mentor one another, to be introduced to one another is extremely important there. So, you know, you hear of famous examples like the Lunar Society in Birmingham, which has leading lights like Erasmus Darwin and James Watt and Matthew Bolton and Josiah Wedgwood and minor characters like Richard Lovell Edgeworth and whole other groups of people where just by them talking to one another, sharing their ideas, having those connections, which mean that they can then support one another as inventors, as scientists, is, I think, extremely important there. That's the sort of thing that I don't think you can necessarily always design as a policymaker. And it has to come from below. It has to come from the people who are doing this stuff themselves. Now, I imagine there are lots of examples of this already, but I think really people who are doing it don't necessarily always appreciate just how important what they're doing is. And that by concentrating very often on those sorts of activities, even if it just seems like informal socialising, that is actually really the, the real meat of what makes all the difference. Mm, that makes sense. And I think in your book, Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society Changed the Nation, you cover parts of how the Royal Society did that. So can you elaborate uh, just a little bit on what is the Royal Society of Arts and how it helped innovation? Yeah, so not the Royal Society, but the Royal Society of Arts, very confusingly. So the Royal Society is an older scientific one from the 1660s. It's very similar as well. It's set up by inventors and scientists following the Bacconi mm -hmm. program. They're big uh, Bacon fanboys. And you know, they're setting up this organization. And originally it's about science, but it's also about invention. But increasingly science becomes the kind of more high profile thing. And so there's then this push in the 18th century to form a society for the encouragement of arts, manufacturers and commerce. So to take the application side of things, the invention side of things, given there's already a scientific society in the Royal Society. So this organization, which is the subject of my book, gets the royal bit added much, much later in the, in the early 20th century. So the Society of Arts is the usual way that it for most of its history called. I mean, ultimately, it's a society of inventors to support invention. So what they're doing is they're 
paying a subscription fee, they're pooling their money. And then from that fund, they're then funding other inventors. So useful things that aren't necessarily going to have a major commercial push behind them. So they go specifically for non-patented inventions so they can complement the patent system. So you've got the patent system that deals very well with things that are maybe going to have a huge profit. But then what about stuff like consumer safety, worker safety? What about, you know, other kinds of more social concerns that might not be profitable, but are still useful things to have? Those are the sorts of things that they start giving prizes to or funding to from the central fund. And then later on, they adapt the fund to all sorts of other kinds of ends. So, you know, it's a very unique and interesting organization. Doesn't really have anything today really quite like it either. But in, in one way to think about it, it's a sort of national improvement agency it's sort of semi-official you know it's got a lot of politicians involved even before it has the royal it ends up with a royal charter in the 1840s so it's sort of semi-official but ultimately it's an informal well formalized but informal association of people paying subscriptions and having direct democratic control over it as well so if you're a subscriber in the first hundred years you would stand up at the meetings and say you know have your say about what's being funded or what should be funded or should they advertise a prize for such and such or should they give out a prize to someone who's you know um, sent in an, an invention unsolicited for a prize so that's the way it works for those for that initial century before then getting involved in other things like exhibitions the great exhibition of 1851 the early world's fairs as another way in which to promote invention to promote innovation um, in addition to prizes. It's amazing. Good to hear. Well, on that note, we'll finish and wrap things up. Believe it or not, I just covered maybe like 40% of the stuff that I wanted to cover, but uh, <laughs> this has been such an amazing discussion. Thank you so much, Anton. And looking forward to your next book as well. And hopefully looking forward to having you back on the podcast. Great. Thanks very much. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the Innovation Civilization podcast on your podcasting platform of choice. We're available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts as well. If you love the episode and would love to share the learnings, please feel free to share with your family, with your friends and with your colleagues as well. 